0: One day in the ICU
1: Hey Rachel
0: Hey what's up
1: Hey I just did an SBT on the guy in bed 12 Oh good You want to see the gas?
0: Sure how'd it turn
1: out Here it is so it looks pretty good I mean his, his, his pH 734 His CO2 is 42 His PO2 is 105 Base excess minus 2 uh, So he looks pretty good in there He's following commands He he showed me two fingers uh, You think we can extubate him? Um so his, his NIFs, negative 25. His RSBI is 89. What else do you want to know about him? Can we extubate well, him? Well,
0: I mean, uh, I really don't want to have to re-intubate him. Why don't we give him another day on the ventilator just to be safe? You know, just to give him a little bit more time to rest. Let's just, get, let's just give him one more day. Let's let him rest. It'll, it'll be great.
1: Hey there, Poemcasters. Welcome to another edition of Poemcast. We got Rachel here with me today. Hey, hey. And we are going to talk about when to extubate your patient.
0: A.K.A. one of the hardest decisions to make in the world.
1: So obviously, extubating patients in the ICU is super important. You got to be able to get these patients up and out of the ICU at some point.
0: Making the decision to extubate can be pretty intimidating.
1: I mean, how many times you've been in the ICU and Someone came up to you with a gas and had a patient on SBT an SPT and threw a whole bunch of numbers at you and just asked you real quick, can I extubate this patient? So what are you really thinking about? Which one of those numbers matters the most?
0: Today, we're going to dive deep on why patients are intubated, what an SPT is, and how we can use all the data that's been collected over the years to help us successfully extubate a patient.
1: Let's kick it off with a little history of mechanical ventilation.
0: So let's go back to 180. Greek physician Claudius Galenius first hypothesized that respiration and breathing was required to maintain circulation. For the next 1,500 years, no advances were made understanding ventilation or really any of the other sciences, the Dark Ages.
1: So they didn't know why we breathe. They thought the lack of stimulation caused you to lose a pulse.
0: To help improve that stimulation, they would roll patients over barrels, throw them onto trotting horses, flagellation, a.k.a. beating or flogging, hanging them upside down cooling them in ice, or even using a fumigator. They would blow smoke up their rectums.
1: Really? Yeah. I don't want any of those to happen
0: to me. (laughs) In the mid-16th century, after all those years, Andreas Vesalius changed the game. He became professor of anatomy in Padua at age 22 and published the first definitive reference to positive pressure ventilation, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, which means the human body devices. In this, he says... But that life may be restored to the animal. An opening must be attempted into the trunk of the trachea, into which a tube of reed or cane should be put. You'll then blow into this so that the lung may rise again and take (laughs) air. So,
1: in 1774, oxygen was discovered by Joseph Priestley and Wilhelm Scheel. I think I said that right. In the late 19th century, the first ventilators were developed. Alfred Jones invented one of the first body devices in 1864, and noticed pressure changes helped augment the work of breathing this was later followed by the first iron lung in 1876 by alfred woollett thanks for giving me all the names to know, <laughs> which became regularly available in 1929 just in time to start treating patients with polio
0: we have made huge advances in 90 years compared to the last 1800 prior likely due to the high mortality of polio in the 1950s In 90 years, we have progressed from the iron lung to tracheostomies as mainstay to endotracheal intubations, all motivated by the goal of reducing the symptoms of mechanical ventilation.
1: It's important to note that ICUs would likely not even exist if it wasn't for the ventilator.
0: Tracheostomies couldn't be handled on the normal floor, which is why they create a separate unit for them.
1: So I wouldn't even have a job.
0: But one thing we haven't focused on in all these years is getting patients off of the ventilator.
1: It's so true, there's so many studies on ARDs and when to intubate and airway management and shock and resuscitation. But how often are we truly studying when to extubate somebody? Seems like there's a lot less studies on when to get someone off the ventilator, which you could really argue is as important or more important than deciding when to put them on.
0: So what is an SBT?
1: So SPT, if you didn't know what that stands for, is a Spontaneous Breathing... Uh, breathing <laughs> my, my country Spontaneous Breathing Trial. So SPT, if you didn't know that acronym, is Spontaneous Breathing Trial. And so what we're doing is a trial where we assess the patient's ability to breathe with no ventilator support. And it's something we're able to do while they're still on the ventilator. To simplify what an actual SPT is when I'm explaining it to patients and families... I just tell them we're going to change the ventilator mode to simulate you breathing on your own. And if you do well during that time period, then we feel confident you're going to do well when we take you off the ventilator. Mm -hmm. A collective task force formed in 2001 that stated that you should start weaning by assessing the underlying cause of respiratory failure to see if it's been resolved or not. And so there's a couple of, there's actually a lot of different modes you can put a patient on to do an SPT. You can do a T piece, which we'll have a picture of in the show notes if you're not sure what that is, but it's a separate type of piece that attaches to the tracheal tube versus uh, a mode of ventilatory support called CPAP or, or pressure support or a combination of both like we use in our hospital where we give a little bit of CPAP and a little bit of pressure support. You could even potentially use something like SIMV. It's probably a little bit uh, over the scope of a relatively short podcast to cover all the differences between those modes, but we'll give you some links in the show notes.
0: There's no current evidence that one approach is superior. A Cochrane review was done showing no difference between T-piece and pressure support regarding extubation failure, but that had low quality. Pressure support was found to be superior in the proportion of patients considered to have simple weaning. So really, there's no one mode that is superior overall. When it comes to the time that you're doing a spontaneous breathing trial, it's really variable. Sometimes they do it only 30 minutes and sometimes they do it up to 120 minutes. There's some evidence regarding the harmful effects of respiratory muscle fatigue if it occurs early in SVTs. Otherwise, nothing definitive. And then there's your own personal judgment. There's not really consensus on what defines success and what defines failure, in general, low heart rate, good blood pressure, no anxiety, and low respiratory rate is used to pass. That does not guarantee the patient won't be reintubated.
1: So every hospital is probably different on what the safety screen is to determine what patients are safe to undergo a spontaneous breathing trial. But I'm just going to give you what our hospital considers safe, um, and the way the order sets written in our hospital is every patient gets an SBT along with their awakening vacation or SAT, spontaneous awakening trial, every single day, unless there's a specific reason they shouldn't get it, we want the patient at a RAS goal of 0 to minus 1 and off sedation. We'll link the RAS in the show notes. They need to have a PaO2 of greater than 60 or an oxygen saturation of greater than 88%. The PEEP needs to be less than or equal to 8. They should be on at least 50% FiO2 or less their pH needs to be greater than 725. Their respiratory rate needs to be less than 30. And also just a general rule of thumb, needs to have a map of greater than 65. That can be on vasopressors. But you don't want to SPT someone who's has an increasing need for vasopressors over the last several hours prior to your SPT. So that's kind of what we're looking at. Anyone who doesn't meet any of those qualifications, gets an SBT every single day in our ICUs. And if you want more information on why doing an SBT every day is important, definitely check out our A to F bundle episode, which is a great episode in general. It's part of the whole wake up and breathe trials that came out several years ago. And so doing a daily SAT and SBT for your patients is extremely important. Even if you know without a shadow of a doubt, you're not going to extubate them today, You should still do it. And I get asked that all the time on shift. Hey, do we really have to SBT so-and-so? Yes. If they meet these parameters and it's safe to SBT them, you should SBT them.
0: So there's no formal recommendations on how to do an SBT. And because of that, a lot of weaning predictors have been researched in the literature. Multiple weaning predictors have been studied, including heart rate variability, oxidative stress, basically looked at elevated markers of malondialdehyde, vitamin C, and low nitric oxide, sleep quality, hand grip strength, and diaphragmatic dysfunction. Ah, I didn't
1: know they had looked at all those different predictors. Hand grip strength, that one is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, it's actually associated with prolonged weaning, but not extubation failure.
1: Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> maybe one day so those are all things that we kind of sort of use but aren't mainstream what are the main ones we use
0: so the main ones we really look at is the cuff leak test mental status and rsbi
1: so what's a what's a cuff leak test
0: so that's a predictor of strider after extubation basically 24 hours before extubation they measured the amount of air leaking after deflating the cuff if there's less than 110 milliliters of air it's a high risk of strider Although a crust around the tube may affect this.
1: So, is a positive cuff leak test a good thing or a bad thing? Because people throw around positive negative tests for this a lot.
0: So, a positive cuff leak test would mean that you do have a cuff leak, which would be a good thing. Right. That would mean there'd, there'd be no swelling.
1: I think that's something that I hear.
0: Mm-hmm. Usually, having something in the ICU isn't good. Right. That's a good point. But in that's this case, it is. It. Yeah.
1: Yep. So, if they tell you your patient has a negative cuff leak test, what should you do then?
0: You should probably start some steroids and wait another day.
1: One or the other. I've seen a laryngeal edema steroid protocol, which is essentially three days of Decadron, assessing the cuff leak every day and extubating a couple of days down the road, potentially when they pass. So, that's one thing you can do. So, mental status obviously, you can't extubate somebody who's not protecting their airway. And we've all heard the classic, it just rhymes, so it's so perfect, GCS less than 8, intubate, uh, which you could actually debate that a lot, but we won't get into that. So how do we know when someone's mental status is ready to extubate?
0: So in general, with mental status, it's been pretty controversial whether they should have intact cognitive functions before extubation. A literature review showed that a GCS of greater than 8 was associated with successful extubation if airway protection capacity is adequate. When it comes to GCS, following commands automatically gets you six points. And so basically, if the patient is following commands in the vent, you could be pretty sure their GCS is greater than eight and they are ready to be trialed.
1: Let's get on to what most people I practice with consider the most important weaning predictor, and that's RSBI.
0: What does RSBI mean?
1: So it stands for Rapid Shallow Breathing Index. That's an equation, respiratory rate divided by tidal volume, and it will give you a number. If that number is less than 105, then that is highly predictive of success with extubation. And if it's greater than 105, that's predictive that your patient is at high risk of getting re If you think about it logically, if your respiratory rate is high and your Potentially, your tidal volume is low, so you're breathing kind of rapidly and shallowly. That is the classic patient that we see fail and get reintubated. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of numbers from a systematic review that we've looked up from 2018 Journal of Critical Care looking at RSBI specifically. So it was a systematic review. So they looked at over 43 articles contained almost 8,000 patients that looked at a total of 56 different parameters for when to extubate somebody. RSBI is by far the most studied parameter. There is 15 separate studies evaluating over 2,000 patients and no single factor could assess ability to successfully extubate as well as RSBI in that study. Now certainly should we only use RSBI when to extubate a patient? I mean definitely not take in every piece of data you can get but it should give you pretty good pause if your rsbi is greater than 105 to potentially not extubate that patient so like in the scenario we started off at the beginning of this episode if the respiratory therapist is coming up to you and is giving you a bunch of numbers one i want to make sure they tell me what the rsbi is and two that's that's probably one of the numbers that they should lead off with first because it's one of my biggest differentiators Let's do some quick hitters on assessing your patient's readiness to extubate.
0: So first you should look at why you intubate the patient and whatever caused them to be on the ventilator. It should be improved.
1: Absolutely. This is a big one that was hammered into me during my training because it's easy to get lost in the RSBI and NIF and all the other numbers you're going to get thrown at you. But take a second and ask yourself, why did this patient get intubated in the first place? Is it because they're in septic shock on multiple pressors? If they're still on a bunch of pressors and you haven't got source control, then why are you trying to extubate them? So ask yourself, have I really gotten them better from the reason I intubated them in the first place?
0: Another couple of factors that tell you whether a patient is ready to be weaned from the ventilator are pretty obvious, but important nonetheless. Adequate oxygenation, a pH of greater than 7.25, i.e. the patient is not incredibly acidotic. The patient is able to initiate an inspiratory effort and they're hemodynamically stable.
1: So at our hospital, if you're meeting all those and we have you on a spontaneous breathing trial, we're going to do at least 30 minutes, sometimes up to two hours, but more often than not, at least 30 minutes. And we're looking at several parameters. We're looking at what happens to your heart rate during that breathing trial. Remember the heart rate variability piece. If your heart rate shoots through the roof, then maybe you're not ready to be extubated. We're going to look at your blood pressure. How many times have we seen patients whose blood pressure also shoots through the roof during their SBT, SAT? We're looking at that RSBI, like we said. We are going to take a look at the ABG.
0: So let's say you do all that and they pass with flying colors. What do you do next?
1: So we already talked about making sure you improved whatever caused you to intubate them in the first place, but also think about their clinical course. Is their illness getting better? Are they going to the operating room tomorrow? If so, probably not worth extubating them. Are they going for an MRI or a CT scan and you're concerned about the potential to lie flat for that long?
0: Are they protecting their airway? Do they have a good cough? Are they not having too many secretions? Are their secretions thin? Are they following commands?
1: This one's pretty underrated and one of the questions you should ask your respiratory therapist, are they having to suction the patient every 30 minutes and it's thick, heavy secretions and the patient can't cough it out on their own? That's probably someone you should not extubate right away.
0: Will they have a patent airway after they're extubated? Do they have a cuff leak?
1: And then lastly, something that is debated amongst our group a lot is neuromuscular weakness. I don't know about you, Rachel, but the NIF gets reported out to me almost every time we go to extubate somebody. And we have a lot of debate internally on whether or not this number is important. It's certainly important for your patients that are intubated for neuromuscular weakness, your patients with Guillain-Barre, Myasthenia gravis, but is it important in the patient who gets intubated for something like pneumonia, for example?
0: I think that it's a really important factor in neuromuscular disease. You should take it into consideration with all your patients, but it shouldn't be the sole thing that keeps a patient on the ventilator.
1: Yeah, that'd be my takeaway. I'm still going to extubate them and just watch them closely. So, Rachel, we've talked about when to extubate somebody and predicting if they're going to pass. What if we want to give them a shot, but we're really nervous? Are there some things we can do to optimize them after we extubate them?
0: There's a couple different ways that we can try and prevent reintubation after extubation if we believe they are a high-risk patient. So we'll talk about three things today. First, we'll talk about the ReConnect trial. Then we'll talk about the utilization of BiPAP and then the utilization of high-flow nasal cannula. So first, we'll look at the ReConnect trial. This was a multi-center randomized control trial done by Fernandez that looked at critically ill adult patients. It asked in critically ill adult patients who pass an SBT, does a one hour rest compared with immediate extubation reduce reintubation rates in forty eight hours?
1: I just thought this was such a simple yet potentially practice changing article. How easy is it to just reconnect them back to standard ventilation for about an hour after we did an SBT? Uh, and if it makes that big of an impact i think we should probably be doing this on a lot of our patients
0: absolutely and the primary outcome looked at reintubation within 48 hours and this was more common in the control group secondary outcomes looked at post extubation respiratory failure within 48 hours whether that was reintubation or having to use bipap and this was also more common in the control group they found that allowing patients to rest for 1 hour following a successful sbt reduced reintubation and post extubation respiratory failure in the higher risk patients i.e., our patients in the ICU, 16% of them were reintubated in the control group, and 6% were reintubated in the intervention group, meaning the patients that got the one hour rest on the ventilator.
1: I think it's so impressive that you get a 10% improvement in reintubation rates just by reconnecting your patient to the ventilator for an hour. Like that is really impressive to me.
0: So, how about using BiPAP after they're extubated to help prevent reintubation?
1: So, BiPAP has been studied to help reduce reintubation rates for a very long time. Uh, I've seen studies from from 2005 up to now looking at reintubation rates using BiPAP to help. And it's had mixed results and there's been studies, we'll link them, in the Blue Journal, Lancet, critical care medicine, anesthesia journals. There's been a, all sorts of different RCTs on BiPAP after extubation. And it's got mixed results. Some of these RCTs end up having positive results and some of them don't. Why is that? I think it's probably really related to patient selection. Perhaps we need to better select which patients would benefit from BiPAP post-extubation because it's certainly not everybody. One of the studies I was looking at did this fairly simply and tried to identify who are our high risk patients for reintubation? Let's put those patients on BiPAP. And they specifically looked at patients with cardiopulmonary comorbidities. And so they, the specific criteria they used were patients with an EF less than 45%, patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy, chronic AFib patients, or patients with severe valvular disease.
0: It also looked at high risk pulmonary comorbidities like COPD, severe OHS, and restrictive lung disease.
1: So they applied non-invasive immediately after extubation and they applied it for a minimum of 8 hours. The minimum settings they had patients on were 8 over 5, which is pretty low. And in the study, 28% reintubation rate in the control arm and a 15% reintubation rate in the prophylactic BiPAP arm. And so pretty impressive numbers, small study. You could definitely tear apart this study. So let's talk about high-flow nasal cannula after extubation. I think this is also something that, at least in our hospital system, we really underutilize that we could be doing a lot more. So there's two major studies I'm aware of looking at high-flow nasal cannula after reintubation rate. One of them is in 2014 in the Blue Journal from Maggiore, an RCT that put patients on high-flow nasal cannula immediately after extubation, so that's within one hour. And the other study that came out a couple of years later in JAMA by Hernandez in 2016 was also at RCT, immediately applied high flow nasal cannula within an hour post extubation. And what was interesting about this study is I suspect Hernandez was already a believer in high flow nasal cannula after extubation, improving reintubation rates, because he specifically selected the lowest risk patients for reintubation rate. And even in the lowest risk patients to get reintubated, they found a statistically significant difference in using hyphaenasic cannula, a 12% reintubation rate versus a 5% reintubation rate in the intervention arm of hyphaenasic cannula. So even in the lowest risk patients, they had a lower reintubation rate on hyphaenasic cannula. So at least in our ICUs, super underutilized, very helpful intervention. To help out your high risk patients, I think the takeaway for me is is that if, if I'm concerned about a high risk patient, then I should utilize at least one or two of the options we just outlined. Maybe reconnect them to the ventilator for an hour, and then choose between high flensa cannula and BIPAP.
0: So I think a big point to hit on is is reintubation always bad? It usually occurs in six to twenty three percent of cases within forty eight to seventy two hours in a normal population. But is it I mean, do you want to shoot for no reintubations?
1: That's something we've talked about a lot in our ICU group over the years. And the general thoughts I'm aware of is, is if you have a extremely low reintubation rate, then you're not really being aggressive enough extubating patients. So maybe you're waiting until they're on extremely low settings and just like with all the 8F a- bundle stuff, the longer the patients are on the ventilator, the longer bad things can happen to them. And so if you're a little bit more aggressive in trying to extubate earlier, then hopefully your patients are on the ventilator less time, they in the ICU less, they're in the hospital less, and only good things can happen to them.
0: Improved mortality, improved primary and secondary outcomes, less risk of hospital-acquired infections, the list goes on.
1: So I haven't seen this number studied in a high level trial. But I thought it was interesting, while I completely agree that we should be aggressive extubating patients, we should have a acceptable reintubation rate. It's not too high and not too low. I've heard somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% to be good. But when I was doing some of the research on non-invasive post extubation, one of the things that jumped out to me is that in one of the studies, patients who did require reintubation your mortality was automatically 50%. And you could really argue what that number actually means cuz probably the patients who got reintubated are more sick, they have more comorbidities, maybe they're older and weaker. Whole host of things go into that number. But just know that patients who get reintubated do potentially worse. So think about that through your process of trying to extubate your patient.
0: So in summary, being on the vent for a long time is bad. There's no protocols for SBTs that have been universally defined as of yet, but the patient should be reasonably safe for an SBT.
1: There's a lot of data that we should do SBTs and SATs on safe patients every single day, whether or not we think they're going to extubate that day or not.
0: There are many winning predictors that have been studied, but one of the most important ones is RSBI, our Rapid Shallow Breathing Index. An RSBI of less than 105 has been shown to reduce reintubation rate.
1: And when deciding when to extubate patients, yes, look at all the numbers, but don't forget your patient. Think about why you intubated them for the first place and think about their expected clinical course down the road, and that will help you decide if they're ready to extubate.
0: For patients that are high risk and that you're nervous about extubating, despite having all the numbers lined up, you can consider a period of rest following an SBT or try BiPAP or high flow nasal cannula afterward.
1: Lastly, make sure you're tracking your reintubation rates and make sure they're not too high, but not too low.
0: All right, well, that's it. Keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.
1: And extubate your patient.